Would you please uh, to pray with me? Father, this is our prayer of illumination. We're asking that you to um, give us light to see. That we can see what is true, Father, in your word. Help us, I pray. Um, take away any distractions, anything that might keep us from hearing this word. Uh, enable us to listen in me. To speak that which is true in a way that is glorifying to you and edifying, Father, we pray uh, to us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians. If you have Bibles, please turn to Colossians and chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 23, 8 through the end of the chapter, which is verse uh, 23. I read out of the English Standard Version. It's a version of the Bible that was put out probably 10 years ago or so. Uh, its uh, forte is that it's quite literal as well as being relatively readable compared to some. Some have asked what version I use. I used to use the NIV. If you have an NIV, that's great. Um, or a New American Standard or... If you speak a foreign language called King James, that, that works for you too. My mom still speaks King James, so that's good. Uh, that's a fine version of the Bible as well, but this is the one that I read. If you'd like uh, to pick one up, we have some in the back that when you come in you can use if uh, you don't want to purchase one and your particular Bible is a different version. Colossians 2 verse 8, hear the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, and by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to these things that all, person, that all perish as they are used, according to the precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now we've been in this letter 
of Paul to the Colossians for quite some time. We're now coming to that point where he lays out his purpose for writing, and, and we see it. We see they're in, in, in danger. We've, we've had a hint of that from uh, a previous paragraph earlier in chapter 2 and verse 4, where Paul speaks to them the danger of being deluded with plausible arguments. And so he, he, he has been presenting his case. He, he front and loaded all of this, so we, we know his argument. We know what he's going to say. He's going to tell us to trust Christ, and he's going to tell us why why we should trust Christ. That's going to be his, his whole point here. But he digresses just a bit to give us a little insight. Not much, quite frankly. It's difficult to piece together exactly what was going on in Colossae, what the heresies were, what the difficulties were. But, but he gives us a little, a little hint of that uh, in, this, in this passage. But he warns them. He, he tells them not to be taken captive, you'll notice in verse 8. He says there's these false teachings that have come. And if you're not careful, they can take you captive. That is, they can enslave you. So here's the truth of Christ. Here's the false teachings. You believe those. You become enslaved again. And you may lose your freedom of the, the freedom of, 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 of guilt. The, the freedom of, the, of the, the pressure of performance. The, the freedom of the peace that comes from knowing that we really do belong to God. He says be careful of these teachings. They can take you captive so don't fall prey to them. They can kidnap you and take you out of that which is true of Christ. And then notice in verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you. In other words, let no one condemn you. Because these false teachers were saying, unless you live like us, unless you do these things, then you really won't reach this fullness of spirituality. You won't reach this fullness of, of, of knowing God. And so... They would criticize them. They would judge them. They would say, don't, don't let them do that. Don't receive that. Don't take that upon yourself. And then he says to them in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Because he had already mentioned that we have been qualified, that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That he's quali- we weren't qualified. God has qualified us. He's qualified us by way of Christ. He's qualified us by giving to us the righteousness of Christ. He's qualified us by forgiving our sins because of the work of Christ. He's qualified us even as he's caused us, enabled us to receive Christ, to trust in him. So he says, now don't be disqualified by turning away from that which is true of Christ and buying into something else, believing some addition to him, but trust in him and in him uh, alone. So the danger is there. Because we realize that false teaching is incredibly dangerous to us. Because all that we are is bound up in who Christ is. Right? All that we are is bound up in who Christ is. And thus, if we have the wrong Christ, if we don't really know him, then all that we are is wrong. All that we are is false. So he says you must know the truth. You must believe the truth. You must trust in Christ, the real Christ, not a false Christ. Else you be wrong. Else you live in darkness. Else you be darkness. So we're to trust in Christ. And in Christ alone. It's difficult to know exactly, as I said, what's going on here. He uses, Paul does, a number of expressions uh, they all seem to flow out of, out of this verse 8. It says, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Here Paul isn't condemning every philosophy course that you may have taken in college. Um, there might be parts of those philosophy courses that were uh, wrong and you learned that they were wrong. But his point is that there's empty deceit in these 
understandings, these words about God. So don't be taken captive by that. And you can tell them they're empty, but also they follow a human tradition. They're the best we can think. They're the best we have to offer. But there's nothing there of revelation of God. Paul would say that what he taught was received from God, that was revealed to him. In fact, when he writes to the church in Galatia and speaks of his own, of his own calling, he says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, the God and Father who raised him from the dead. Then in verse 11 he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it isn't a tradition of men. It's a, it's a tradition given to us, if you will, by God. And so we're not to fall prey to the best thoughts of men. I was thinking this week of all the thoughts of men that come across my desk or things that I read or people that I talk to or when I'm watching television, I watch them all the time. In fact, we were watching a television show just the other night together, Karen and Grace and I and a few other friends and and something happened on that show and my daughter Sarah was also watching it in Pittsburgh and something happened on that show and she immediately texted her younger sister saying, I'm glad I'm not watching this with dad. I can only imagine what he's saying. Because I, I, I talk to characters on television about what they should be thinking and why what they just did was human tradition. It's just a good exercise for me, but annoying to my children and also those in the theater. But, um, <laughs> but I think about these things all the time. What is it? Because I'm trying to test myself. What am I thinking that's wrong here? What have I bought into that isn't really true? It isn't true of Christ. How is my life being skewed because I've been impacted by that which is our best thought, but which is trumped by Christ and all that is true in him? This, what Paul, at the bottom of this page, the end of this chapter, calls these things which are, according to human precepts and teaching, have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they're of no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, it appears that these, these false teachers were promising a fullness. They were promising that if you do and, and if you do these particular things, that you will, in fact, have, have power over the flesh, that you will indeed reach a moral superiority and a, and a spiritual height. Um, and I think about those. There's always, it seems to me, a sense of, of legalism within us. Legalism which says, if I do these things, then God will accept me. There's that in us. It's, 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 it's wrong. It's sin. It's, it's perversion of truth. But, but this sense of, if I do these things, God will accept me. These things may be good to do, you see. But not so that we can prove ourselves to God. That's actually dishonoring to him. What's honoring to him is to receive his word and goodness and his transformation in our life. Moralism is always alive around us. That which says, this is the great American theology, I'm a good person. And therefore, I'm all right. I don't necessarily need all that forgiveness but I'm essentially a good person. I know other good people and I'm trying to be a good person as long as I'm trying to be a good person, as long as I'm being a good person, then, then certainly I'm acceptable to God. I don't need his power. I don't necessarily need his strength. I don't need his forgiveness. We're just, I'm just a good person. 
Um, most of us who think we're good people put ourselves probably in the upper 10% of all the good persons. And that's true except for those who put ourselves up in the upper 1% of those. But we can find all kinds of people who aren't quite as good as we are. So we feel really good about that. That whole moralism thing. I can do this. I can be good. I must be. Because I'm inherently good. And that's just not true. We see good people. We see people doing good things, if you will. But, but we must recognize the heart of all of us. Um, there's always this sense of the religion of doing versus the religion of it's all done. The sense of doing, 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 whereas this sense that comes through us by way of Christ of rest in what he has done, that's counterintuitive. It runs completely against who we are. We think, I must do this. In fact, even as believers, we fall into this trap. We sin and we think, okay, before I confess it, what I'll do is I'll do three good things. Or I won't do that for a week, and then I'll confess that I did it a week ago. That way, I'll feel so much better about it, and I think God will be happier too. And he isn't. Because we don't do penance to make up for what we've done. Christ is sufficient. He's satisfied all the wrath of God. So I needn't do penance. I receive the very forgiveness that is from God. And then there's what I always call liberal Protestantism that tries to take the divine out of Christ. That says that that we really can't know the real Jesus because the real Jesus, the the Jesus in the Bible is the one that was was written down in the late 1st, early 2nd, maybe even mid-2nd century. And, and really it was a, a group of people who, who spiced it up a bit, who put the deity part in there, put the resurrection part in there, put the miracle part in there to, to just show that, or just attract other people to this new faith so that Christianity could grow. That we really can't know the, the real Jesus. Uh, we must deconstruct that which is here. We must take away the myth and we must find as best we can the historical Jesus. When we find him, what we find is a really good man. What we find here is a really good teacher. What we find here is somebody who, can, who models what real love is. And, and that's the essence of it. It's, it's real love. So as long as we're loving, we're capturing the very heart of Jesus. We're capturing the very heart of Christianity. We don't need necessarily to focus attention on this atoning sacrifice and death. What we need to do is, is love. And, and then we have the true essence of being Christian. And while it is true that we're to love, the rest of it's bunk, right? The rest of it's just wrong. They've, they really haven't received, as Paul says here in verse 6 that we studied last week, they haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ. They've received another. They've been duped. They've been held, they're being held captive. They don't really get it understand it. In this mix is this expression that no one can really have all the truth. Um, Everyone has a bit of it. Again, a lie. God has all the truth. And if all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus and all fullness is in Him, then it's all in Him. And we rely and depend upon Him. He's the one who has all the truth. He's seen it all. He knows it all. He's the very Son of God come to us. There is part of this as well, that what seems natural to us, what feels natural to us, must be right. Therefore, God would never condemn me for living out a lifestyle that seems to come natural to me, whether that's 
uh, heterosexual sinfulness that comes naturally, or whether it's homosexual sinfulness that, that seems to be true of others. And we think, well, just because I feel like that, it must be right. How could God condemn me for that? And the truth of the matter is we're all born in sin. The truth of the matter is none of our passions are pure. The truth of the matter is we all must submit to this one who is the Lord, all of our feelings and all of our passions, both for his evaluation, then for his forgiveness, and then for his transformation in every area of our lives. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it is right. Just because you feel it, since you're not God, write that down. Just in case you're confused, he is the Lord. He is the Lord Christ. There are those who say that our faith is simply a private matter, not a public matter. How can that be? How can you run into a closet and be a follower of Jesus and run out and not be? How can you run into your closet and think that which is true that comes from Christ and come out of your closet and not think those thoughts? How can you apply these things to your life when you're alone but but not when you're out and about? I mean, it's just impossible. Uh, It's just crazy. Some have even said this. That God is omniscient. But since the future can't be known, omniscient simply means that you know everything that can be known. So, God doesn't know the future because no one can know the future. The future, therefore, is open. The future could take many twists and turns. Now, God's really smart, and if he really thinks about it, he probably can figure it out, but... It's not because he's ordained everything that comes to pass. It's not because he's sovereign. It's simply because he's smarter than the rest of us. But things may change. Who knows what's to come? Some say we can't really know truth because truth is so culturally dependent. How can someone in this day and time, how can someone in our culture speak that which is true to another culture? Shouldn't we simply let them be? No. Not when the Lord has commanded us to make disciples of them. Not when the Lord has said they really uh, aren't right as we were not right till he came to us. I think if Paul were writing to us today, we'd say, don't fall prey to all of these kinds of things. They're the traditions of men. They're made up of the elemental spirits of the world. Now, that little expression is a difficult one to translate. To be really honest with you, you can spend a long time reading every commentary you could come upon and still not know what that expression means uh, because it, 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 it's, it's one that Paul uses, but we've lost it a bit. But it seems as if he's referring to basic kinds of things, whether they be as the ESV translated as elemental spirits, referring to perhaps angels or even demonic spirits, that somehow paying homage to these, to these spiritual realms will help us be more spiritual. Again, Paul will say, no, you have Christ He's the spiritual one. He's God in the flesh. Trust him. Don't worry about these other things. So he says, be careful that nobody takes you captive according to these, um, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the bottom line. Everything that's not according to Christ. He says, dismiss. Dismiss that. The reason being for in him, in Christ, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily 
And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He says, think about it. If all fullness dwells in him, where would you go for fullness? Right? I know they have milk at the grocery store, so I go to the grocery store for milk. So if I want fullness, then wouldn't I go to the one in whom fullness dwells? So go to Christ. He has it all. Fullness. And we're in him. In him, meaning we're connected to him. We're joined together to him. The Bible uses a number of different figures to to help us understand this idea of being in him. Speaks of branches in a vine. Right? Speaks of uh, a body in a head. Body and head joined together. Even this expression of marriage. Husband and wife. Two becoming one. What's that mean? Well, not that the husband becomes the wife and the wife becomes the husband. Not that we become Christ in the sense that we become deity. But in the sense of connected to him, that all that is true of him, all that he, is, he has for us, is extended to us because we're joined to him. All that's in this vine is extended to the branch. Right? All that a husband has is extended to his wife. All that a wife has is extended to her husband because they're joined together. The, all that's in the head is extended to the body because they're joined together, you see. And so we're in him. So this fullness is extended to us. All that we'd ever need, all that we'd ever want, all that we, we, we would ever desire is in him. So seek him. And it says, in, in this one uh, in whom is all fullness and one who fills us is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, nothing can thwart him. Nothing can stop him from filling us because he's the head of everything. Now, now we don't always believe that. And we're often taken captive for instance, we can be taken captive by our fears. We believe our fears and not Christ. Our fears fill us rather than being filled with Christ. And so we become afraid. And, and, and rather than being filled with the authority of Christ, we're filled with this fear. We can be filled with anger and taken captive by it rather than be filled with Christ. And it makes sense to us. We say, well, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they did to me. Sure, I'm going to be angry. We can be filled with bitterness rather than this one who is the Lord over all circumstances and bitterness. And we can say, oh, you don't know what they did to me. Surely I have a right to this bitterness. I must trust him. He is the Lord. Now Paul makes his case then why we should trust him. And and again, these verses, I'm just going to take us through verse 15, so relax. Um, But... Uh, these, these verses Paul draws upon to speak to us about all that Christ has done and the fact that we're in him. Let me read them and then just briefly lay them out for you. Verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, you wonder, okay, Paul, why why are you talking about circumcision? I mean, (laughs) what's the deal? Uh, In fact, he sort of drops it. He he says that, we'll use the expression uncircumcised in a minute, but but basically he's he's not really drawing a huge critique of circumcision here, it's clear that these Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised because they already were in one significant, the significant sense. 
When did that happen? Well, briefly, some history, quick. Abraham, remember him? Genesis chapter 12, God shows up in Abraham's life. His name was Abraham at the time, but I'll call him Abraham because it's just easier. His name was Abraham, but, but God shows up in Abraham's life in Genesis 12. And it's just amazing to us because you wonder, why him? Out of all the people in the world, why him? And we're never given an answer to that. In the same way, we're never given a huge answer to why God has chosen us. It pleased him to do so. So he picks Abraham out of all these people. And um, he makes promises to Abraham. He says, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless you. People who bless you will be blessed. People who curse you will be cursed. You have many descendants, and from your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. From your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what was amazing is that, is that Abraham was relatively old at that point and had no kids. Then we stumble back along Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, three chapters later, a couple of decades later. God comes to Abraham again, and he says, Abraham, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward, meaning I'll protect you and I'll provide all that you need. And Abraham scratches his head a bit and says, but God, you made these promises to me and I still have no offspring. I guess I'm going to have to leave my whole inheritance to one of my servants named Eliezer. God says, Abraham, look up in the sky. What do you see? Stars. How many of them? Too many to count. That's the way your descendants will be. And the scripture said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him, given to him as righteousness. That was Abraham's moment of what we would call justification. God declared him to be righteous. Not on the basis of anything Abraham did, but simply he came to God in faith, trusting in the promises of God. And at that point, God made a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to go get a couple of birds and I want you to get an animal. And I want you to cut them in half. And most especially this animal, he cut in half and he laid it out. And that was symbolic of a covenant, a promise being given by God that was going to be rooted in this killing of this animal. And the killing of the animal meant this, that if either one of us betrays this covenant, we will be killed. Now normally in a covenant like that, the two parties to the covenant would walk between the pieces and they would share with each other the promises that they would make. God would share the promises to Abraham about being a great nation and being blessed and all the families of the earth being blessed through him and all of that and the land promise, all the promises that he made to him. But, Ab- but God put Abraham to sleep because Abraham had nothing to contribute but rest. God says, I'll take it all upon myself. If I break the covenant, I die. Abraham, if you break the covenant, I die. That's the very one, the promise, the seed who would come from your descendants. He'll take upon himself the curse of the covenant. Then in chapter 17 of Genesis, God gives to Abraham what appears to us to be a relatively strange sign of the covenant, this sign of circumcision. But he says, this promise that I'm giving to you is both for you, Abraham, and for your descendants. Thus, that makes the rationale, that gives a rationale for this particular covenant sign. For your descendants after you. I'm going to mark you out. You'll know this promise is for your descendants. And this promise is that I will declare righteous all those who come by faith. And these blessings that I promise you will be to them. Not everybody who gets this outward sign will be so blessed because it's an outward sign that's to reflect something that takes place inwardly. In fact, Moses would quote God and put it like this, you must circumcise your hearts 
That is, you must cut off, be cut off from sin, else you'll be cut off from God. And so the blessing of the covenant was that if you come by faith, then you'll be inside the covenant. But if you do not obey, if you do not believe, you'll be cut off. The blessing and the curse all signified by way of circumcision. Now Jesus comes. Comes into a Jewish family circumcised on the eighth day as all the little boys were circumcised in Israel or should have been circumcised in Israel. They too would rest in this covenant promise. Had nothing to do with their behavior, nothing to do with their goodness, but it would simply mark them out that a promise had been given to this people that if they come with the faith of Abraham, they will be justified too and the blessings will be theirs. But if they do not, they'll be cut off. They carried this sign with them as our children carry the sign of baptism with them. And so Abraham come, or, um, Jesus comes and this passage that Paul writes says that there is a circumcision uh, of Christ. If you have a new, Amer- a new international version, it says a circumcision done by Christ. But notice how he puts it. He said, in him you were circumcised with a cir- circumcision made without hands. That's a biblical expression. That means, that means God did it. It wasn't done by hands. It wasn't magic, but it wasn't done by hands. It was done by God. In him you were also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. Well, that's sort of the image we get with circumcision. If you have a new international version, it says the body of the sinful nature rather than the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, what is that? Well, one of two things we could say. Surely Christ was circumcised on the eighth day as a Jewish boy. But he took the curse of the covenant for us at the cross. Notice this expression in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, we've been through. And he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in, in his body of flesh by his death. Notice how he puts it in Colossians 2. Verse 11, by putting off the body of flesh, this body of flesh that died, this body of flesh that died on the cross, this body of flesh, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the curse of the covenant. He was cut off. Well, well, I'm sure all of you were both here and listening to the call to worship. For those of you who weren't here, (laughs) lingering in the hallways, But I read from Isaiah chapter 53. It's Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah coming. Notice what he says here. By oppression and judgment, he, the he there is Jesus. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus was cut off. That's the curse of the covenant. That means... You are disobedient. That means you don't believe. That means you're disobedient, not like Abraham. So Jesus takes the curse of the covenant for us when he died. And we were in him. And thus we took it too in him. We didn't feel it. He felt it. And all of that 
so that we could live. Paul goes on. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ or even done by Christ to us when he dealt with our sinful nature. And Paul, in a sense, says you should get this because you're baptized. And this is, the, this is what baptism signifies. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is a powerful work of God in Jesus and a powerful work of God in you. Notice how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. He writes of Christ, of God, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That work in Christ. And that he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what Paul prays in Ephesians 1, before he even gets to that point, is that we would understand that that power is towards us. Notice, he prays, verse 19, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the great might that he worked in Christ. So Paul's saying, listen, all this took place. It's already happened. Receive it. Receive it. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you had been cut off and now you've been received in. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You remember, if you've seen the movie of Jesus' death on the cross, one of the many, or if you've read it in the Gospels, you remember that uh, in the ancient world, in ancient Rome, when they crucified someone at the top of the cross, they normally put the offense. So passers-by would look up and read murderer and say, oh, okay. Or thief, oh, okay. Or, you know, um, uh, someone caused a political riot against the king. Oh, okay. Now you remember, Jesus had upon his, the king of the Jews. Uh, was his claim, and that was an offense against Caesar, and at that point, even against the Jews. It was, it was true, but it was offensive to them. That's why he was being crucified. The image that Paul gives us here is that while Jesus was dying, we were in him. And one of the things that took place is, above the cross was a list of our sins. And he says, what happened when Christ died is, that list was canceled. You think about your sins a minute. Um, it might take longer than a minute, so just you know, do the cliff notes. But we think about our sins. If you would think about writing them, and then think about them being canceled, you know, the cancel button, the delete button. Think about them being wiped off, like they were written on a whiteboard, and somebody came along with that really fancy stuff and wiped it off so clean. You looked at it, and you couldn't even see the markings like you can sometimes see on a bad whiteboard. 
gone completely. You come to say, well, what are my sins? They're not there anymore. They've canceled them. They've been paid. It's been a mortgage burning, if you will. Whatever the indebtedness was, it is now gone. It doesn't exist. God says, I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. You see? He remembers our sin no more. It's not that he's stupid and forgets. He simply chooses to remember them no more, bring them up no more. doesn't count them against us anymore. And in the meantime, as while he's doing that, he triumphs over Satan. So we needn't worry really ultimately about him. Yeah, he, 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 he moves around like a roaring lion seeking one to devour, but we needn't worry that he's going to devour us. He's a defeated enemy. He's a defeated foe. We stand in Christ. We stand in Christ with the belt of truth. We stand in Christ with the belt, breastplate of his righteousness. We stand in Christ with our feet shod with the gospel of peace, knowing that we have peace with God and we can maneuver in that peace wherever we need to go. We stand with a shield of faith against him, faith in Christ that puts out any accusation that may come our way. We stand with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, praying, knowing that when we wield it, praying, when we wield it in truth, that he leaves us because he cannot stand against us. But the scripture here says that there was an open shame to which Satan was put, that he has been shamed, that we needn't pay him any homage at all. It's often referred, the cross, is often referred to like this, the scandal of the cross. It's a biblical expression. The scandal of the cross. But really it was a scandal of Satan. It was a scandal of evil. In fact, that little word scandal in Greek, scandal itself, um, means this. When little boys, when I was a little boy, now I'm sure little boys don't do it this way because they're way more technologically advanced. But when I was a little boy, the only way to catch a squirrel, a rabbit, or any other critter in your yard was to take a box and a stick and tie a rope to the stick and get some bait. What you would do is you would tilt the box up on the stick, put the bait under the box, have a string long enough so you could hide in the bushes so that when the squirrel, rabbit, or any other animal that was way faster than you uh, entered that box, you would pull on that string and the box would come down on top of the varmint and it would be scandalized. It would have been tricked. Now, that little stick in Greek is the scandalitza. It's the trick. It's the trick. It's this, what's scandalous. Satan thought that the cross would scandalize Jesus. Yet he was scandalized because he was disarmed. In the midst of the cross, God took away Satan's weapon, which is our guilt. You see, Satan comes to us and says, listen, if you ever get close to God, he's going to condemn you. If you ever get close to God, he's going to condemn you to hell. If you ever get close to God, he's going to judge you. If you ever move close to God, he's going to cast you out. So stick with me, Satan says. But once that guilt is removed because of Christ, we can simply say, he should. He would be just to cast me out. But he won't. Because I come to him in Christ. And so now Satan has been disarmed. 
So Paul says, trust another. Trust only in Christ. Jesus not only gave us the sign of baptism, having fulfilled circumcision and even in baptism, but he gave us another sign as well to, to point to all of this, another seal that is a point of authentication, God's stamp of approval on this truth, on this promise, that if we come to God by faith in Jesus, that as Abraham was counted righteous, so we too, and therefore all we need is in him. He gave us this sign. It was the night that he was betrayed. You remember he took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in the same way, the scripture tells us that he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my bloodshed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming, however odd this may sound, that we've been circumcised. All of us. Men and women who believe in him. That is, he was cut off for us. And we are included in him. All of the blessings that God has for his people. That we've died with him. That we've been raised with him. That we might live this new life. And all of that by way of faith. You'll notice in your bulletins, if you have them handy, grab one. That we put off a confession of faith till now. Because all of this, according to Paul, is that we believe in Jesus. This confession of faith, the one we have this morning, is, is the Apostles' Creed, ancient creed. We've, we say it probably every month or so. As one of our creeds. But you'll notice that we believe in God the Father Almighty. He's the creator of all. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We, we see that His deity was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We see His circumcision. His being cut off. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell to us. Meaning that this descent into hell on the cross meant that he suffered condemnation for us, was cut off for us. And then he rose from the dead, and we in him, we died, rose with him. And now he's seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. And we're seated there with him, in him. Even as he rules and reigns, even as he intercedes for us. We're there in him. The very, we're in the very heart of the high priest in glory. We believe in the Holy Spirit as the Spirit calls the church together our fellowship with each other that we've been forgiven. A day will come when we'll be raised and we'll live this life everlasting. Question. Do you believe that? If you do, then Christ was cut off for you that you may live. He is all you need. Let us together make this confession of faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth.
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Pray with me, Father in heaven. Here we are. We come trusting in Christ. We pray that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way that we can come to this table and receive from our Lord Jesus. You know the bread and juice is always bread and juice and all of that. But because he instituted this supper and he said that this is his body and blood, we trust that he's here spiritually. We trust that he's here. And therefore as we come by faith, we trust that we'll meet with him in a special way. As his word informs and fills, we trust this bread and juice will fill as well because we come in faith. And we pray that indeed even as we come our faith would be strengthened, that we would be filled in him who is the fullness of deity, the one who is Lord and ruler over all. Father, we pray that you would make real to us that we have died and risen with him. That you would make real to us that in our dying and rising, Satan was defeated and disarmed. That you would make real to us that we truly, truly belong to God and we need none other than Christ so that no matter what circumstance of life would come and no matter what philosophy of life would come to try to describe that, that we would trust only Christ and look to Him. The bless us now in the richest, deepest sense of that word as we commune and sing together. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord and He calls to this table all who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, desire to walk in Him. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in His sovereign mercy. To all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel as the Savior of sinners. And to all those who desire thereupon, having been rooted in Him, having received Him, to walk in Him. If that's true for you, let me ask you to come. This section can come down this aisle to my left, this down the aisle to my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and declare by your very coming and your eating the Lord's death until he comes. Please come.